Welcome to the Real Estate Addicts Podcast. This is episode 18 with your host, Ray Herto, HRV Homes. Dan Rubin, HRV Homes. Mark Savatsky, Choose Boston. And joining us today, we have Nicholas Nardone, Touchstone Closing and Escrow, partner at a real estate conveyancing firm. Nice. Go by um, Nicholas? No, I go by Nick, but I, f- I want to be professional on the podcast, guys. I don't know, I don't know who is listening <laughs> on the back end here. <laughs> well, thanks for coming down. Thanks for joining us. You, uh, you busy these days? It is absolutely slammed. It is great to be in real estate. I'm sure you guys feel the same way. There's just a lot of turnover in the market. Rates are great. Drive around Boston, new construction going up everywhere. Uh, people want to be in the market in some way, shape, or form. So if you own a place, they're refining. I have clients that own a multifamily. They're get, trying to get into the condo market. As you guys probably find with, with some of the um, products you're going after, it's just people you know, want to get into the development as well. So you, know, you, got, you got people that uh, haven't done it before, but they want to get into it now. How many closings on average are you doing a month? Ooh. So right now, so we're in the busy period. So next week, I personally have 50 purchases. So we'll be doing as a firm about 80 just next week. So that's, that's busier than normal, but I'd say we're doing about 30 to 35 a week. And then with refis, it can really spike, you know, it all, it all depends on who's getting cleared now. So you have lenders, especially the the lenders that are uh, at the top of their game. They have a great database technology is finally caught up in the mortgage game where they can go back, know exactly who would be beneficial to um, refinance. They're sending out a direct mailer to that person showing how much money they can save on a monthly basis. Already have all their credit, most of their reporting, they update it and we're closing off a two owner rundown title in 20 days. Wow. Crazy. So condos are the single family of the city of Boston. Tell us. What does that mean? I don't know. There's no that, single family an, homes. Okay. Like if, if there's a new development, it's not like somebody's just building Wait, single I, families all I had over a the quick place. Quick one for Nick. I want to yeah. just sort of a peek behind the curtain. Is it true that title insurance is a big profit center for uh, for closing attorneys? So in Massachusetts, um, just because you know most of the legislators here are attorneys, they protect attorneys in Massachusetts, which I believe, I truly believe that it protects the consumer. So in a lot of states, you have title insurance companies that are issuing title policies to banks. Banks need insurance to make sure that someone is doing their due diligence when they put a mortgage on a property, they could foreclose and be able to protect their asset. So in some states, you have just insurance companies doing it. In Massachusetts, it needs to be issued by a Massachusetts licensed attorney. So what that means is title insurance companies have to issue policies through attorneys and Attorneys are going to need to be compensated for that. So just like your car insurance, just like any other insurance you would buy, we become the insurance broker. So there are different splits between when you sell insurance, how much you get, how much the title insurance company gets. That all can be worked out by individual law firms. So it is a profit center. The one thing that's different is when you get in a car accident, you probably don't call your buddy up who sold your insurance policy. You call up Liberty Mutual, you call up Arbella. When someone says, hey, by the way, you don't own that property, you call your attorney first. So it goes through our liability insurance. We have to cure the issue. And then finally, we also have the backing of a large insurance company to help us out. That way, everyone is protected. Do you have any horror stories with regards to title? You know, my great uncle Johnny actually still owns this and this passed through and now you don't own what you thought you owned. Not 
crazy ones where like, you know, a guy knocked my door and like put a deed in my face uh, or my grandfather had this deed under his mattress. He actually owned a property, but two very real stories that just happened. Selling a property in Revere, people moved to Middleton, put the property on the market, title search came back in. The woman uh, didn't inherit the property. She did get it through a deed through her mother 20 years ago. The mother did not convey over all the land she owed, owned two, two lots. The mother moved all of her rights and assets into a trust. Mother passed away. If she had moved everything that she owned specifically into the trust, this parcel that was not sold off at the beginning would have been able to be sold by the trustees and it would have been an easy fix. However, since she didn't realize she owned it, she never conveyed it. So now they had to reopen a probate estate, establish a personal representative, establish that there were no creditors on that parcel. And then now we have to go forward and resell the parcel to the person that they thought owned it. Oh, man. Well, we had that. Remember, we had that crazy one on that three family we bought. Oh, yeah. I mean, it took a year. Oh, in Dorchester? In Dorchester. That one was a nightmare. There was a, there was yeah. a minor involved. There was a deceased with like 10 heirs. Long story short, the guy who we bought it from, he was divorced. So prior to him getting divorced, he had the building in a trust. But when he got divorced, he decided to just remove it from the trust by himself. Like that, just, with, going, a, just going to the registry deeds and submitting a piece of paper. Well, he don't, saved don't, some legal fees. Don't, don't, <laughs> you don't need to get the other trustee's signatures. That's okay. Then, then there are two beneficiaries of the trust. One was a minor. The other one passed away. The one that passed away had 10 heirs. And so the, the state had to appoint a personal representative for the minor to represent the minor to make sure that the minor wasn't getting screwed out of any money. It, t- it took over a year. Yeah. They, so they, all this is to say, make sure you have title insurance. Yeah. Here's the thing. You know, if you bought a car and someone said, hey, you know, you live in a rural area, you know, the roads are all brand new paved. The weather's not that bad. You paid $30,000 for the car. Do you want insurance? Yeah, I probably want it just in case something happens. I paid $30,000 for this house. How much does insurance cost? Well, it's it's 1000 bucks a year. You know, I think I'm going to own the car for five years. You know, I'll, I'll have the car paid off. I want insurance for it. Most people pay for it. People are spending a million dollars on a house. Their total title insurance policy is going to be under $4,000 for as long as they own it. You know, so it's like that one-time fee for your largest asset is probably a good idea to get insurance. It's not like, Oh, rental car insurance where you have coverage and the rental car insurance just makes it easier if something does happen. You don't have real coverage unless you buy the insurance. You know, you have my Arizona emissions policy, but I go out of business, you know, if something happens in five years and maybe it doesn't cover. This is something that a nationally recognized company is, is certifying title on and has a lot of legal support, has a lot of clout in the industry, and has a lot of money to pay if something does go wrong. And again, not all the time is someone claiming that they own your property, but this happens on a weekly basis. You go to sell your property, you think nothing's wrong, and I have to tell you, you have two prior owner mortgages on your property. What that means is on title, that mortgages do not leave. So mortgage, Massachusetts title, you have to think of it like a ladder. And every rung on the ladder is a different legal document. The rungs never leave. But rungs above the previous document should state if something's been paid off or cleared. So whenever you have a mortgage on your property, it never leaves the property. But you should see a discharge that says you satisfied all of your conditions on that property. So a lot of times what happens is the discharge gets mailed to the wrong person. 
doesn't go to the right registry, has the wrong reference. You need to now clear that up. So no one's ever going to claim that you owe Bank of America $300,000 from when you bought the property, but that discharge could take from Bank of America up to six months to get, especially if they sold the loan. There's an obligation in a federal statute that after a loan has been paid, they have 30 days to satisfy and get a discharge. But all they have to show is that they sent it out because now we're seeking a confirmatory, which is not in that 30-day window. So it could take a long time. It could cost a lot of money. The biggest time we see it used is that that's when the title insurance company comes in and they're not actually saving you a ton of money. They're saving you time, which then equals money. You could have to lose out on that buyer that you have where the title insurance company steps in your shoes, indemnifies you and says, we'll let you close. We will certify this new buyer is protected. Their bank is protected and their title insurance company is protected. And the, the terms we use is indemnify. So step in the shoes and then undertake. So physically actually act on that discharge to clear the issue for the person. Cool. I think a lot of people don't get the title insurance because they might feel that, hey, I, I did the title rundown before I bought it. Everything looked good. But well, unless you're buying a cash, the bank is going to re... Well, I guess there's a difference between titles, lender insurance, there's an and owner's. then your owner's policy. Correct. Right? Do you want to go into... So lender's policy covers loan specific. Doesn't cover Bank of America. It doesn't cover Leader Bank. It covers Bank of America loan one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Once that loan has been paid off or refinanced, that coverage is gone. The new lender is going to get new coverage. Your owner's coverage covers not only the amount that you borrowed, but also the amount that you paid on the house. It also increases with the value of the property. So if you own a house, you bought a million dollar house, you own it for 10 years, it's now 1.3 and something happened, you're covered for the full replacement value of that 1.3. It also, here's the big thing. The bank doesn't care if you have a discharge issue and you can't sell your house. You still owe them the mortgage in August. They do not care. You can figure that out for yourself. You signed a mortgage for 30 years. You're going to keep paying it until it's fully paid off. They don't care if you want to sell the property. So now that owner, that lender's policy that you have is not going to get that discharge for you. You're going to have to do it yourself. Because the owner's coverage covers you personally. The lender only covers the lender. And the lender doesn't want to enact any title policy for you to be able to sell your house in a timely fashion. One last question on title, and then we'll move on. Can you get a better deal on title insurance if I shop around or the rates it, it, set? It, 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 it's, a, it's a set rate. It's very yeah. much like you were buying like nationalized flood coverage. It's a percentage of the loan amount or the Correct. dollar amount. Yeah, that's how they say. And different states are different. Like title insurance per purchase price is less in New Hampshire just because of the standards they've set and what the um, underwriters and actuaries have come up with. Sure. And so for, for you know, development community out there, Dan and I have done this. We've, we've gotten the title insurance and we've had scenarios where we purchased a property, went through the whole rehab, sold them, and the buyer's underwriting or legal department found additional deficiencies that our purchasing side didn't find. And that title policy was extremely helpful. So don't, don't cheap out, get the owner's policy. You guys want to go on to uh, foreclosures? Well, I want to follow up with my single family, uh, oh, the yeah. condo, the single family <laughs> thing. <laughs> Can we define what that means yeah. still? <laughs> really what I mean is, you know, you're not, any development, you're just going to have condos and that's like the single family of today. You're not going to find a subdivision in Boston, which is all single families everywhere. Pretty rare. So that's what I meant. And what I mean by that is just to kind of um, just ask, you know, a lot of people think that making a condo or taking an existing building and condoizing it is complicated. It's not really that complicated. It's just paperwork and plans, right? Legally, it's not complicated at all. You know, you guys being developers know that, you know, what people want and their expectations are a lot higher than what is legally needed. People want to know that I have my 
Like if, if I hear one more, I, I have roof rights, right? Yeah, I, I guess. But you can't just go, you know, toss a roof deck on your roof. You know, yes, you do have roof rights, but you need to, you know, go through the proper steps in order to get a roof deck that's going to add value to the property. But in Massachusetts, to establish something to be a condo, it's more than one unit. You're going to establish a master deed. And the master deed really, in the simplest of terms, is a depiction of the building itself in writing. So it describes what the building looks like, how it's set up, what each unit owns exclusively, and what's common. I hear it all the time. I'm, I'm the top floor. Why do I need flood coverage? Well, because you own 30% of the foundation. So you know, if the foundation goes, you need to pay your percentage interest into fixing that. The same as unit one shouldn't care if, if the roof gets a hole in it, but they have to because that exterior roof membrane is common. And it should be because otherwise you have unit three only caring about the roof and unit one only caring about the foundation. So when you are buying in, you are responsible for the common area elements. But the good part about that is it makes everyone the same team. It keeps people responsible for um, you know the front steps, the rear steps, the siding, the roofing, because Otherwise, it'd be really difficult to get loans. Banks would, you know, not want to lend to the first unit because of water penetration. You know, they'd want to make sure that they get roof warranties for every top unit. So when it's a portion of a whole, it makes it a lot easier for everyone to buy, be responsible, and be fiscally fiscally responsible in a proportionate interest. Hopefully. Yes, that's the goal. That's the goal. <laughs> and, and that's obviously, you know, there's the, the trust and the bylaws and all that detail. And then Cor- there's correct. also the condo budget. And the budget is what? allows people to pay in to yes. maintain so, those yes. parts of the so, building. So, so budgets, you're supposed to have one. So you're supposed to have what elements are common and how much people are paying into it. The good reason for that, so anyone that owns a condo that's been around for a while and you know, you, you're buddies with the other two owners and, and you haven't kept a budget, most likely the relationship that you have probably will change if one of those people leaves and sells. So you to, to keep an, even an informal budget and meeting minutes, and that just means that, hey, we talked on January 1st, we discussed that you were going to keep every unit at 150 bucks a month, we're going to pay the water bill, we're going to pay the insurance, and we're going to um, you know, pay for rock salt uh, this winter. That's, that's as simple as it can get. But when you have it where, oh, the bill comes in and we all pay for it, that works effectively if everyone's on the same page, but the second someone doesn't buy into it, now there's not enough money. Now the insurance is going to lapse. Now we have fiduciary duties that people are not getting into. And then also, if people don't pay the condo fee, it's tough to prove if you don't have one in place. You know, you're supposed to pay half of the interest. Well, you know, what, where does it say that? You can go down into the condo bylaws, into the, into the, into the trust document that, that the trust actually is, is different than the master deed. The trust is who runs the master, who runs the association. So the trust, the reason why we have a trust is because the trust lives on past the unit owners. The trustees are people named usually in, in one of the first three provisions of the trust that claims who is going to be responsible for that building. We deal with in you know, the neighborhoods that are outside of the, the big buildings in Boston, small associations two, three, four units. Everyone knows each other. Everyone's a trustee. But whenever I talk to people buying in new condos and they ask, you know, do I have to be a trustee? Or why does it say that people outside can be trustees? You always have to think of the biggest building. You have to think of the Millennium Tower. You know, we have all of these units. Everyone can't be a trustee. They have formal professional trustees, accountants, attorneys, some unit owners who all give their professional opinion because they're not thinking about the everyday, you know, noise complaint. They're thinking about making sure this building is structurally and fiscally sound. How often are you seeing 
Because we obviously, as developers, have to set up a condo association upon the sale. How often are you seeing, you know, sales, you know, three, five, ten years down the road? How often are you seeing condo associations that are being mismanaged and aren't run correctly? To be honest, usually, and I, anyone out there who's part of a management company, I just haven't found a good management company. I, I find that most management companies are dropping the ball somewhere. I've had people tell me like, hey, my management company is not bad, but I have really had people say, I love my management company. So, you know, I feel like that you're always starting like a C and like, if you get a C management company, you're, you're in a good spot. So self-run uh, management company, especially in the city, we have a lot of professionals of some, just it all it takes is one type A diligent person to keep the books going. And then everyone has to realize that, you know, again, you're buying into a portion of a whole. You own unit two, but if, if the siding is cracking, you got to fix it. You know, if there's, if there's routine maintenance that needs to be done, you have to do it. And that's the reason why you don't own a single family. You know, you're all pooling your assets in order to accomplish that, that, that goal. If you wanted to just own it by yourself, you would, um, you know, you'd, you'd buy that single family house, that rare unicorn Ray was talking about earlier. And then also the biggest change in Massachusetts condo law was uh, what's called the super lien. So the crazy part for a condo association would be, hey, unit three is not paying. They have four mortgages in the property, a primary, and you know they've gotten so much, they, they've lived there for 10 years. So their value has gone up so much, they've been able to take out home equity lines and, and secondary mortgages, and now they're not paying their condo fee. That makes everyone else suffer. So the people up in the state house said, you know what, let's allow a condo association to trump over mortgages in order to foreclose on that unit to recoup their money. Because if they don't do that, it could hurt more than just one person. So the first thing I, I ask someone when, when they say, hey, unit two is not paying their condo fees, I say, do you know if they have a mortgage? I'll go look it up. I'll have Wells Fargo fight that fight for, for the condo association all day long because they know if they don't fight and send a formal letter saying that unit two is in violation of their mortgage covenants, there could be a condo super lien that trumps and forecloses on the unit. Obviously, you know, they're only able to sell it and take back their amount of money that they're owed, which probably condo fees isn't a ton. And then Wells would be able to take, you know, ownership, foreclose on it to get the rest of their money back. But that's a really important feature that condo associations can use in order to make sure that they meet their fiscal requirements. So what's the difference between a co-op and a condo? And why does Boston <laughs> not have any? A co-op you own a portion of. It'd be very much like an LLC or a corporation. Like an LLC, you're a manager and you run it. And a corporation, you have a percentage and you have a role in there, but you really, you, you, you have stocks and you own portions of it. And then you transfer that interest onto someone else instead of, you know, you actually have it, that, that physical asset. So, so there's no like deed? Technically, it's not a deed. It's, it's a transfer of ownership. But a deed is, is just title. So it's who currently has the interest in that share of it. So when, you, when you're buying a, uh, a four-unit condo, you're buying 25% of that interest. Similarly, in a co-op, you'd be buying 25% of what the co-op is. So there's a chair and a board that runs it, and then you buy in percentage-wise. But it's just it's it's real. It's very similar to a condo. It just has more of an underwriting process getting in. Their rules can be stricter, and then you're technically not buying unit 100. You're buying you know 25% of that co-op. The big thing that was good for in New York is it 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 kind of caught on because the strength in numbers, people were able to say, hey, let's make this board that's looking out for who's coming in. So people, you know, because 
if you had a 10 unit building in a great area and I went and talked to unit one and I was able to, I'm a developer and I was able to say, hey, we're going to give you this amount of money. And then I talked to unit three and then I talked to unit four and then I just kind of forced everyone out and I redid the whole building. Now the co-op board can actually ask, are you going to be a unit owner? You know, you're, you can't rent this out. Here are your pet restrictions. Here's what you're buying into. Yeah, but now it can also the, the co-op board say, well, I don't really like Sally, so I'm not going to let her in. Technically, they have kind of, you know, those type of meetings at the beginning. And I'm not going to claim to be an expert on, you know, the discriminatory rights of a co-op board, but there are... I have, the- a, I have a personal gripe with them. I just think that they are, it's absolutely like the last bastion of like, it, it's discrimination. Like you walk in with a young baby and they're like, oh, Dan and his wife have a two-year-old. And then they make up some other reason. Oh, he didn't have enough money in his checking account. So I don't know. It, it does take away of some uh, <laughs> uh, 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 of Mark's bitter. No, yeah. no, and, and, but it makes sense because, and, and I wouldn't even be bitter on that level of a buyer, but now imagine you're trying to sell your interest and you can't find someone who meets the board's requirement to sell. Because for me, whenever you buy real estate, it's only valuable to the to the person that you're selling it to. And that's where you're going to be able to cash in. So if you can't sell it, now you've devalued it. So technically, the board does have a fiduciary duty to work towards it. But like Mark said, they're going to come up with another reason and say, well, our fiduciary duty can be met. Just find someone that's not going to be annoying with a, chi- a noisy yeah. child, you know? Well, Crazy. Yeah. Interesting. Hey, one other one. On condominiums, what though? You you purchase a building and it's currently tenanted, and you intend to let the leases expire and convert those to condominiums. Is it that easy? In Boston, yes. Some cities have requirements. Somerville probably has the strongest rights for tenants, so they want proof that tenants had at least one year notice that you're selling the building before you terminated their leases. So anyone who's going to condo in Somerville, I recommend, and I'm actually doing this today. I had clients who called me, their leases expire um, August 31st. The tenants are totally happy to sign documents. So we have them signing documents that we acknowledge that Somerville has rules when condoing. The tenants have rights. The tenants acknowledge they had one year in order to stay. So the lease could automatically be extended one year from notice before you can condo it. And they're waiving those rights. Is there a lesson like more generally than Somerville or Boston? Just look up condominium conversion law in X municipality. And- yeah, so, so basically Massachusetts does not have a rule against that. But towns are able to be more restrictive with their local ordinances. Are those ordinances legal? In the town, yeah. I mean, you could definitely bring it to the SJC and they're going to say, well, you're doing it in the city of Somerville and they're doing it for a reason. It'd be the same thing with with zoning. You know, you guys know there are Massachusetts rules and then there's local Boston rules and Boston's able to enforce them because they're able to convey on a legal level the reason for their zoning is to keep up with proper civic obligations, community obligations, and that trumps some of the Massachusetts rules. So if I have a three-family in Somerville and I go to the condo removal board and I bring them everything and they say, no, you can't condo convert this. Are they allowed to do that? Are they allowed uh, to tell uh, me that I can't condo stra- convert my a building? Stra- a straight no, I think you would win. But they've given you rules and guidelines Correct. that that everyone is subject to, yep. not just yourself. So No, I'm, I'm not, I'm, I'd, I'd follow everyone. I think if, if you know... Under you, the assumption that you're following if, the rules. If, if you went to a board that didn't have strict guidelines and they could just have you walk in, ask you some questions and say yes or no, I think you're winning that battle. 
But when the guidelines are known for everyone and they're in place, uh, and the guidelines, and I'm just, just talking about Somerville specifically, is meant to keep ten, keep tenants' rights protected. So, you know, we're not going to throw the, the rent up and we're not going to kick you out because, you know, we want to get someone in here who's going to pay, you know, 600 bucks a square foot for a condo. So it's really to protect the, the rental market in, in, in those communities. Have you guys ever chased a foreclosure property? Way back when we first started. Me too. And I've, I haven't looked at one in probably four years. Oh, yeah. It's infuriating. It's so frustrating. Opportunity comes up. You go and you show up at the stoop with 15 other people, and then it's delayed. And then it happens again, and it's delayed. And then the bank can... Well, the only reason why we did it was I would go on to like bigger pockets, and I would search for all, all these forms and stuff. And people were like, oh, yeah, we go down to the courthouse on the first <laughs> Tuesday of every month, and they just rattle off a bunch of properties that we're going to foreclose on and then you bid on them and then you get them. <laughs> and I was like, oh, it's that easy. And then I started looking into the Massachusetts, how to do it in Massachusetts. And I was like, oh, this sounds like a nightmare. Yeah. Instead of one central <laughs> location, you have to go to the property. You have to go to the property. And just foreclosure rules are very strict. You know, that's why all of your lenders on your commercial loans are going to make sure you're buying it in an LLC. Because if you bought it in your individual name, you could be like, well, I'm living here now and you got <laughs> you got to foreclose on me. And it's going to take maybe 10 times the amount of time for them to foreclose on you. So buying a foreclosure is an awesome opportunity, but not a lot of people do it because it's, it's difficult and you, and you might strike out a hundred times before you hit that home run. So uh, is it a state by state requirement in terms of how the foreclosure process is done or, be, you know, because it seems it, it, different. It, it, depend, it depends on the lender because you have, if you're using a national bank, they have to meet federal requirements, plus they have to meet the local requirements. State, states are independent. So you do have independent state rights, but they cannot trump federal rules that, that you have as a natural protection. And when you look at the mortgage, most of them um, are going to say at the bottom, you know, standard Massachusetts mortgage, standard Delaware, standard North Carolina, because they're going to have some local differences, but mostly it, it's still going to take some time. It's not going to be you know, I didn't make my, my, my payment in January and, and in February, um, you know, we're kicking you out in the stoop. You know, you're going to have some rights to cure. You're going to have rights to modify, you know, and you're going to have rights to make claims. So if, if the mortgage company did do something wrong, you know, back when we had the mortgage crisis, a lot of people were able to avoid some of those interest hikes because they proved to a federal judge or a um, supreme Supreme judge in that state that they were not truly informed of their rate hikes. There was consumer protection breaches. This was the uh, robo uh, stamping or something, all the robo uh, well, notices. It, that's a good point. I, I suppose my comment that chasing foreclosures is infuriating <laughs> as a developer is somewhat insensitive <laughs> because there is a, you know, someone on the other end of that. So but yeah, at the same I appreciate that. Well, I mean, so if they're not paying is, their mortgage, I mean, they're not paying their mortgage. Is the so, reason true. why Massachusetts, is it, a Massachusetts, is it a Massachusetts thing for you having to go to each individual property to auction the or foreclose yeah, on the building versus going to like the local yes, that, that's, that's that's the way Mass does it. Okay. Um, two reasons: one, because that way everyone knows what they're getting. Because most of the most of the houses too, you're not able to go. You, you see them physically when you're there, and then two, the property owner has the right to first pay off that debt. So if there's a debt on the property and they owe it, they have the right. To go pay that off, it's be very difficult because you probably weren't paying to refinance it or to just pay cash for whatever that is. Because you also have to have to think of 
even if you had a very high interest rate, you've owned a house for 10 years, you're paying on it, you still, you know, you, your original mortgage was 300 grand, you still owe 280 on it, but the house value might be double now. So when they go to foreclose, even with all the fees, there still might be money left over on there. You know, so you still, you still might be paying off the promissory note. And remember, we're paying off a promissory note. The mortgage is the security interest. So that promissory note that you sign at closing, that's the contract you have with the bank. Right. So the reason why we have a foreclosure proceeding is because we put the mortgage on. You sign promissory notes with credit cards, with student loan debt. But how they satisfy when you default there is by taking you to um, a civil action and saying that you breached a contract, whatever terms are in there. They try to get attachments on property. They try to get payment structures. They try to get you know wages garnished. That would be very difficult for banks to do on a high volume basis because courts are just very tied up. So they have the mortgage where you have a, an asset. You have this structure that they can sell in order to get their money back. Obviously, you know now we've pushed it back into the courts, and that's why the the, the foreclosures take a long time. But you know the biggest you know it's it's no it's no secret, but you. Know, for a person that's going into foreclosure just to raise defenses and ask for discovery and make the bank produce documents, that takes time and that pushes it out. So that's why you guys were sitting on the front stoop and you know the guy raised his hand and said, by the way, this is getting pushed off for two weeks because someone raised a last minute issue that the bank had to go into. And also, you don't want to buy a foreclosure that you might not own. So these are the reasons why the rules are so strict. Is it true that the banks aren't, obviously there was a lot of hatred to, towards banks and Rightfully so, they were stupid in the way that they lended. But when they do the foreclosure and say the house is worth double what is owed on it, they're not keeping that money. That money actually legally goes back to the owner, right? It it does go back to the owner. Obviously, you know, usually in a foreclosure scenario, it's because they couldn't do a short sale or because no one wanted to buy the property. I mean, what you guys, and I'm sure you've done it, you know, we don't have to go specifics, but you have a family or a friend member go, hey, you guys do developments, right? You know, my, my aunt's, needs to get rid of her house. She's getting behind her in payments. You know, something happened to the family. Something happened with their job. You know, there's a bunch of equity in the property. Can you come help help her out? And then you guys buy it. You pay off the mortgage, you know, and there might be fee- late fees or something on there. And you might have to, there might even be a, um, a foreclosure notice out, but you're going to pay it all off and it's going to be, it's going to square up the loan. So usually a foreclosure is a little bit closer to the value, loan to value because no one was able to bail that out. And then a short sale just means that the property is worth 400, you owe 405, the bank's willing to take less and absolve you of your rights. One more on foreclosure. My experience as well, just as a developer standing on those stoops, the bank will buy it back if, in, especially in Boston, in a hot market where they know the asset is worth something. Sure. And if only four people showed up on that rainy day, they're just going to raise their hand and bid the highest and then give it to a realtor to market appropriately. Yeah, and they'll, so they'll make more money in the back to, end there. Yeah, yeah. It, of, of course. That's why the best developers are finding, you know, to, and I'm saying best developers financially are finding the properties that no one else wanted and seeing the vision to monopolize that piece of dirt buying it as little as possible, being able to sell it for the highest amount. One other question as it kind of relates to foreclosure. Ray mentioned, you know, banks being stupid in their lending practices. Do you see, do you still see banks being very strict in their underwriting guidelines? Or do you see banks starting to kind of loosen up? Banks are are still pretty strict. And 
let's be honest, they don't want to say no to people. You don't want to be the bank that says no, because the more no you say, the more people aren't, aren't going to come back to you. So they have, and thank God for this, we, we have federal regulations of which they have to meet. You know, if you're getting an institutional, you know, Fannie Freddie back to type loan, they have to meet some requirements. They're now starting to do like bank statement loans. So that means like, you know, you're in sales, you've changed careers a couple of times, you don't have two years employment, but you have a lot of money in the bank because you were successful. So they're able to say, well, you have this money in the bank and we can write off of, you know, your last couple um, payment cycles and they're able to approve loans that way. So they're getting a little more lenient than where they were, but the Dodd-Frank Act took effect on mortgages, you know, with the closing disclosure, October 3rd, 2015. And now banks need to disclose their figures to a consumer at the initial uh, inception of when the loan is locked in and the final number, three business days before the loan closes. Because we did have, you know, you'd be at the closing table and I'm sure you guys might see this on your commercial loans where the number changes, you know, and it might be small, it might be 75 bucks, but it could have been a point. You know, hey, if you really wanted that rate, your credit score went up and we need to we need to move it. You know, and now you're at the table. You're if you don't close, you're probably in violation of one of the covenants in the purchase and sale, which might even be that you're in default and you're gonna lose your deposit or more. So you are kind of like you have to weigh that decision. Do I pay the bank, the bank physically making money off me twenty five hundred bucks, or do I lose my twenty five thousand dollar deposit? You're gonna pay the twenty five hundred dollars. Because, you know, there's really, you know, financially not another option to go. So now with the protections of you see that number at the beginning, it better be very close at the end. And if it's not, we have to know why and you have to sign off on the why. I think it's good in general for for protection. You know, it's not a perfect system. There's still foreclosures. But I think uh, going forward, you know, people do feel more informed in the process. I mean, it's really just the, the now they call it a, what was the old good faith estimate. Now it's something else, but a loan estimate, I think. Yeah, it's just, a, it's just a closing disclosure. It's only certain components that they have to disclose and, and be more consistent with. Well, are they still, I mean, the, I think to Dan's point, the question was, are the lending standards getting a little more lax. Like, are there obviously, you can't just lend to I, I, dead I, people or something I mean, like they used to do. <laughs> we're, we're lucky enough to work with, you know, people in the city, in the Northeast, in Massachusetts, who do pretty well financially, you know, and I'm talking about on a national scale. So we're not dealing with a ton of, you know, even mass housing or, or, we, or different types of products that are meant to get people who don't have, you know, the traditional, you know, the means to pay the Yeah, debt. the traditional upbringing of like, hey, you, we're going to, you know, you're going to stay at home and, you know, mom and dad paid for college and, you know, your first job, you're going to um, live at home for four years, you're going to save your 10% and you're going to go buy a house. And then, you know, that, that, that it doesn't happen for everyone. Or, you know, I have a, and sure you guys see this, we have a ton of parents who are paying the gifts for the down payments for, for people's houses. I don't get to see it as much of people getting denied. I did see when I first started 10 years ago where, hey, Johnny got this pre-approval and now he's not approved anymore. The pre-approvals have gotten stronger. The top lenders I work with, I'd say my top 20 people, I've never had an issue with a loan not closing. When they say it's good at the beginning, they ask the correct questions. They got the correct documentation. Day one, minute one. And as long as that wasn't grossly incorrect, the loan's closing. If someone gives the wrong information, yeah, you can't you know, you can't certify that. If someone says, oh, I've been working here for three years and they haven't, you know, like you, you, you can't, you know, go, oh, well, yeah, we'll just not check that box off, you know, but if people give the correct information, 
And some some lenders are even giving not pre-approvals, pre-commitments. So basically, basically you're financially underwritten to buy this house. The only thing is we need to get title and we need to get an appraisal back. That's pretty close to a cash offer. Yeah. We, so we talked about foreclosures, which is a favorite uh, category for developers. Another one certainly are estate sales. So an estate sale is if the property is left um, as an inheritance. So we've gotten calls from brokers and they'll say something to the effect of, Mark, I have a great opportunity. I'm going to be listing this. It came via an estate sale. So unfortunately, I have to put this on MLS. It has to see the open market. Is that a truism? Is that always true? Well, you you have to understand what an estate sale means. Estate sale means that someone who owned a property passed away. Right. And someone is getting a benefit of that income of the property. Obviously, the person that passed away cannot use that money anymore. So it's being passed on to either through a will or, yes, or intestate. So that means without a will, Massachusetts breaks down who would legally get that money in proportion share. So the personal representative of the estate, so the person who is running the state, has a fiduciary duty. They have a financial obligation to those heirs. So if they went and sold it to you, it never hit the open market. Your price might be over what the open market pays, but we don't know that because it never hit. So usually, and if the offer comes in and you have, you know, if they got 10 offers and they were all with mortgage contingencies and they all had these different terms and extended closings, they can take a lesser offer, but they just have to prove that, you know, here's why we took it. It was a 20-day cash close guaranteed. We needed the money for medical reasons or the estate was upside down and we actually had to pay off a lot of tax liens or mass health liens. So that's why we need to move quickly. As long as they can prove that they did their duty in a fiduciary, fiduciary role, you're, you're okay. The, the other thing I see with that is often they won't let you lock the property up with just an offer to purchase. Basically, you're vulnerable to other offers and people coming in showing interest until you sign a purchase and sale agreement. Have, have you ever seen that? Maybe they're just hustling me. Not, <laughs> not, not necessarily. I've seen it where it's submit your best and final, and you know they're telling you, "Hey, you look the best so far, but we have till Friday at five. You know, so I've seen stuff like that, but I haven't seen, "Hey, we've accepted your offer. We're working towards a purchase and sale, and then you know, Company B comes in and swoops in and takes the property from you. I haven't seen that. Hey, what got you started in uh, going down this road towards? being an attorney and getting into real oh, estate. Fuck. Do you own any real estate? You can curse on the show. <laughs> uh, I, 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 do, I do own real estate. I love real estate. I got into it, kind of knew I wanted to be an attorney. End of high school, beginning of college, I thought it might be, might be a cool thing to do. I think I like to argue, you know, like I, I, like, to, <laughs> I, like, I like to defend my points type thing. And now I, I rarely do that. You know, like most of my deals are, people are happy. And, you know, I, I, I go by the letter of the law, I explain, you know, what, we're doing and and rarely are they contentious you know when they come contentious we we can we can we can put up a good fight because the way we draft our contracts but what got me into it was i was a college soccer player and i tore my hamstring going into my senior year and my coach was like you know i don't think you're going to be able to uh to play and at least till the end of the year i was a good college soccer player but i was not going pro so saint anselm had a um opportunity where you could kind of like a do a co-op for up to four classes. So you could go work 40 hours a week, get a sign-off, write a paper. And uh, my father's attorney was like, hey, if you want to come work for me, you can come do it. So it was in Boston and I was able to, I was on crutches. So I was able to come down. I, I, I missed You're my- on sl- crutches for hamstring injury? 
I, I come tore, on. I, 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 I must I, have been a bad. I, I, I tore it. Yeah. So it was, it was, it was a full, full, <laughs> full tear. It was like they described it as like taffy when you pull it when you when you <laughs> oh, pull it when you pull oh. it apart. The soft part in the Do you middle. Have surgery. Yeah. I didn't. It was just had no no weight for three weeks, and then you know I was in. I had like um, a little bit of a mobilization. It wasn't 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 terrible. I, I got my bad injury when I was thirty playing was there soccer. A GoFundMe account. I wish. Yeah. I wish. <laughs> so I uh, I went and I started working for this uh, general practitioner in Boston, and he was like, "I want to start a real estate arm." So he hired a very experienced um, real estate paralegal, and they said, "You know, Nick, you're going to help him out." So I was ordering payoffs. I was trying to, you know, I was recording documents. Like I was at the registry walking around aimlessly going, you know, who am I supposed to talk to? I need to put this deed on record. I have a check, you know, (laughs) where am I going? Like trying to find parking spots and, you know, talking to the right people and waiting in security lines and, you know, leaving my belt or whatever at at the security desk because they wouldn't let me in. Stupid stuff like that. And I said, you know what? I I, kind of like this. I like the pace of it. It was fast. You know, people were really happy when the deals closed. And this attorney also did divorce, did some criminal. And those were just like, oh, we're dealing with this divorce for two years. And every time, you know, Donna calls on the phone, she's crying and yelling at you. And I was like, this doesn't, I don't want to do that. That doesn't sound like fun. But the real estate stuff, people were happy about. Now, I was like, you know what? I, I, I think this is a road I can go down. You know, obviously, you know, uh, financially too, it was, you know, the market was was in an upswing. It was right after uh, 2008. So people were buying properties and starting to get back on their feet. So right after the the, the worst part happened, you know, I, I got back into it. I just kind of was successful there, became successful during law school in it. And after law school, worked for him for a little bit. And then another real estate firm picked me up and I uh, learned, a, learned a ton. I was able to work on um, North Point and Cambridge, the, those, those towers that went up right by the, um, the Prison Point Bridge and uh, um, had a connection with the First Republic Bank there and, and learned kind of about just different lending. So I was, I was dealing with, you know, the, the Bank of America's and the small banks and kind of saw what, what new construction was like and, and really liked that. Do you and, have any favorite banks? Yeah, of course. But I work with almost 70 of them. So I'm so not going to, I'm not yeah. going to, I'm not going to totally, yeah. not going to mention them tell all us, here. Yeah. Tell us the bad ones. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> What makes them good? Maybe that's yeah. the yes. question. Yes. So what, what makes them good is being able to do what I said earlier. So do the initial underwriting so there's no questions. I've had great experiences with Bank of America. I've had horrible experience with Bank of America. And it's all been on the loan officer and control. So when you're dealing with, I'll use Dedham Savings. Dedham Savings, their corporate offices are located in Dedham. We got them, we got them to name a name. Everyone's in that office. And you're talking to one person who can walk down the hall to talk to anyone that might have an issue. When you're dealing with Bank of America, they have to call an 800 number and they have to, you know, wait on wait on hold, reference a loan number and ask a question. It's that things just take longer. So when you're in a business of closing in 30 days, if you have someone that has their thumb on it, usually it happens quicker than I'm going to send it out into the field and hope everyone else does their job. Like like anything. So actually, here's a question as a developer, you know, we obviously like, Ray and I like to qualify the buyers that are buying our product to make sure that they're qualified and, and can afford it, et cetera, et cetera. You know, some of the buyers will use these large national banks, which Ray and I aren't too fond of. As a developer, what, what can you legally tell a buyer that you have an exclusive or you, you we, we would like you to use X lender? Like a preferred lender. A preferred, we have a preferred lender that yeah, we I want mean, you to use. Yeah, I mean, you guys, it's an open market. You can say, I don't feel comfortable with that, you know, pre-approval letter you got. 
you know, I just, I, I don't like, I, I, I'm not accepting it because I do not feel comfortable with that pre-approval. There are builder to buyer programs, Needham Bank, particularly, I know puts in their PNSs for some builders. I'm not sure if it's a bank policy or if the builders just use it, but for a mortgage contingency to be effective, you need to at least apply to Needham. You don't need to go with them, but you need to at least apply to Needham. Because if you get denied by, and sorry, Bank of America, I'm just using you because everyone knows you, but, um, and you're great at banking, you know, and people know you for that. And I think that's why people want to go to Bank of America for a mortgage because they're like, I already love their checking account and I, I, I'm friends with the manager. Why wouldn't I just try to get my mortgage to them and their rates are great? Um, so there are builder to buyer programs. There are people that say you need to do this. Um, and, and you can ask that they get approved through a certain bank. For you, I think obviously, you know, in a great market, it's it's a good strategy. In a slower market, you know, you might be taking out a little bit of your market share. So, a developer could go through and say, buyer, you need to be pre-approved or underwritten by a preferred lender, or you have to get your loan through them. Is that, that's so, a big difference? Huge difference. So, you can't say you need to get your loan through them, but you can say if you don't get approved, you, there's no mortgage contingency. Basically don't want to get high level into contracts, but the the Massachusetts person sale that most people are signing are going to say that if we don't close at a certain time, that the buyer defaults their deposit or some sum of money. So if you have a contingency for a mortgage that says, if I not approve for a mortgage by X date, then you're able to enact that clause and not be in default, get your money back, get your deposit back, the contract ends on its face. So you are able to say, hey, you can get a mortgage through anyone you want, but I'm not going to give you that protection of a mortgage contingency. So, so Nick, being an attorney, do you find it hard to have... Make friends? Yes. <laughs> have, have Are arranged- we allowed to not sell to attorneys? Are you a protected class of individuals? <laughs> I don't think so yet. Yeah. We, 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 might, we might need a, uh, a union delegate, though. I don't yeah. know if we've ever sold to an attorney. Uh, can't say that we have. Yeah. I think I know the answer. I'm pretty sure you don't have to. Do, do you, you don't say you, it out you, loud. You don't have to. <laughs> yeah. You don't have to. Yeah. But you, but I will I say love attorneys I will say I, I represent attorneys often and you get two types. The types that want to fight every word or the types that go, "You know what? I read these contracts every day. I feel just good. Like I just want to get the house. I don't want to read anything." <laughs> you know, in my personal stuff, I, I take off my legal hat. So I've seen on, on both both ends. Uh, I guess that's what I was going to get at is do you, do you find it hard to refrain from like putting everything into a contract? Just the most... To be honest, um, and I I, and I I won't say the firms, but I, I, I'm able to represent a lot of lenders who lend to high-level attorneys at gigantic firms and who do very well and are very successful. And they always say like, they, they never read the note, never read the mortgage because like, hey, I would love to sue a bank. So I hope something in here is illegal <laughs> or wrong because if it is, like, I, I don't even want to know about it and we'll, we'll sue them in the back end. But no, I'm not, I, I'm more on the stuff that I protect you guys with. It's, it's the stuff that I've learned from, you know, going through hundreds and thousands of transactions and you go, this is going to be an issue in the future. So high level stuff, no. I, I know that Massachusetts is going to protect you. I know that you know language in the contract is naturally going to protect you from you know someone not giving you what you bargained for. But specifically, when we're talking about legal parking spaces, we're talking about exclusive use areas. We're talking about you know fixtures. We're talking about builders' warranties, stuff like that. I know can lead to an issue in the future. So that's the stuff I fight for. And if I fight for it, I always back it up with here's why I'm asking because you know I don't think you should just hem and haw to get it in there to win real estate, you know, is, you know, it's, it's a huge investment for people, but,
but it shouldn't be contentious. You know, you you put something on the open market. I wanted to buy it. You know, if if your broker did the right job um, marketing it and disclosing it, I should know ninety percent of what I'm buying. The other ten percent is for the lawyers to to cure up and and put in the agreement. We should be able to close. You know, Amen. Yeah, I agree. absolutely. Yeah. Hey, you guys ready for a quick game of overrated, underrated, or appropriately rated? Absolutely. You know how that works? Familiar? Uh, no, I'm not. Uh, Nick, you got to listen to our <laughs> podcast. Yeah. <laughs> but, but hey, I, I, I'll learn quick. So we'll introduce a term, a theme concept, and then you just basically say if you feel that it's overrated, underrated, or appropriately rated. So okay, we'll give and, you an easy one to start. And maybe why. Yeah, and why. Uh, electronic notary. Overrated, underrated, appropriately rated. Currently, I think it is appropriately rated because I, I do feel that... Um, Everything is moving in a different direction. I don't think that real estate should be halted there. Um, I think as long as people are protected and that the the laws on a federal level will support the um, the notary. I mean, we we were sending out fax PNSs, you know, fifteen years ago. You know, and I would I would hate I would hate for someone to be like, you know what, that email I don't think it's going to catch on. <laughs> so I think we, you know, real estate needs to catch up with the times. But I also think that the consumer and the um, the the seller or developer needs to be protected as well. Mark, how do you feel about that? Oh, I think that they're way overrated. I think we need <laughs> notary publics. It's an inside joke. Mark's a notary. <laughs> My mom is so proud. <laughs> so as we've mentioned a few times, you put it on your resume. Oh, top of it. <laughs> First thing I want people to read. We've mentioned a few times I'm up in New Hampshire and, and the buying process there actually is pretty different. Attorneys usually generally aren't involved. So how about just attorneys as part of the buy-sell process in real estate? Well, in Massachusetts, we, we are involved. So I think appropriately rated in Mass. And I think what, what hurts people in other states that don't have attorneys involved is if I truly do something wrong and you call the board of bar overseers, they are going to call me in and I'm going to have to explain myself. Where I don't, think that a lot of the other licensors, carpenters, electricians, plumbers, real estate agents are as closely monitors as we are. So I think when you're in an industry where a ton of volume is happening with these large scale expensive properties, you want someone on the hook that is going to have to pay for their mistakes. I'm, I'm with you 100%. I, it's like the penny wise pound foolish thing. I actually feel weird if I do a transaction and I don't have the attorney on my side, because it just seems like I, I don't know what I'm doing, right? And and I don't trust the real estate agents or brokers as much. So yeah, and and, and there are a lot. I mean, I get so much business from unbelievable real estate agents, people that are you know really on top of their game, who are going to um, continue education classes, who really want to learn, who 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 keep you know evolving, who have the consumer the seller and everyone's best interest at heart with everything they do, but that's not everyone. So, you know, the fact that, you know, we're working with great people doesn't stop that in another market, there might, there may be someone who is taking advantage of someone else. And if that happens to be an attorney, like, you know, our IOLTA accounts are monitored, you know, like if, yeah. if, if we, if we, if we go negative on an IOLTA account, instantly <laughs> the bank notifies the board of our overseas and I have to go in and explain why that happened. Paying for food at brokers' open houses as a law firm. Overrated, underrated? It depends. So sponsoring open houses. I'm going to go with, in, in, ge- in general, 
I see it a lot. I'm, just curious if that's a fact. I'm gonna go in general yeah. overrated. Okay. And the reason why What if it's a really good spread? I'll plug my clients, American Provisions. I always get their charcuterie <laughs> board. They they do they do a they do a great job. But I, I think the funny part is mostly you are sponsoring the open house to try to get a buyer. So you're sponsoring it for the listing agent, trying to get a buyer, and all the buyers coming in already have attorneys. So like you're you're, you're it's really just paying it forward to that listing agent, hoping that uh, you know, in the in the future what when he or she gets a buyer, you're trying to get it. Legal Zoom. <laughs> I honestly... I had that written down. I honestly... You? I'm going to go overrated because I know nothing about it. You know, other than I've had people be like, oh, I started an LLC or I did a lease on Legal Zoom, and then they still call me. So I, 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 I'm thinking it, it, it's overrated. And I really like Howard Stern. He used to... They used to sponsor on Howard Stern. So I knew about them, but I feel like in, Ma- in Massachusetts, people still hire attorneys, so... Yeah. I mean, I had a friend that we were out couple weeks ago and she's starting a business in New York and she's like, uh, you know, talking to me about the steps that you need to take. And I was like, oh, did you set up an LLC and all this stuff? She's like, oh, I'm just going to do all through the legal Zoom. I was like, uh, you might want to consult an attorney as well. Yeah. I mean, le- legal Zoom, I mean, put it this way. If, if they were bad, they wouldn't be around for as long as they were. So I think they fill the void of, you know, you want to start a small scale project, you're going to hire a small scale, you know, a, a, attorney like LegalZoom, who's just going to put you in a box that you're checking off, you know, their questions that they have, and it's going to be appropriately, you know, satisfying all mass regulations, but you may be missing out one way, shape or form. And and the biggest thing is, you know, an attorney is, is someone who's going to listen to you and and ask questions that might not be on that survey to protect you even further. Local lenders versus national lenders. That's not underrated, overrated. Oh, God. See, he doesn't... Na- just- sorry, national <laughs> lenders. Appropriately rated. And the reason why is because they do fill a void if you are refinancing or if you're buying that property from your parents and you can, you know, there's no timelines, there's no multiple offers, there's no, you know, your uh, W-2 employee who's been working at the same job, you have great credit, you have good cash reserves, and you're putting down 20%. They're appropriately rated. But if you are trying to buy your first condo in South Boston, new construction, on May 1st, you're probably going to have a tough time doing it because of rate locks because of requirements. National lenders are also normally looking on a national scale. So they're, they're confused by Boston condos. A lot of the times, like we're getting these condo questionnaires that don't even make sense when we're answering yes or no, we can't. You know, they're saying, you know, how many phases do you have? We're like one. And they're like, well, is it complete? No, we don't have the CO yet. Well, when is phase two going to start? And it's like, well, no, I said no to that question before. <laughs> like, why do I have to answer it now? So like, they just don't get it. So I think the local lenders, and I might, I don't even see it, but I think they're pre-underwriting and pre-answering a lot of the questions. So I'm just getting the ones that they really need answers to. Great. I think it's a good place to leave off. We should do this again. Yeah, we should have a part two. That, that was Are you great down again. for a part two? Yeah, that was great. Right. I just have to learn how to say appropriately. <laughs> <laughs> so if uh, listeners want to get a hold of you, how can, uh, how can they find you? My website, uh, touchstoneclosing.com. My email, nnardone.com. N-A-R-D-O-N-E at touchstoneclosing.com. And I give everyone my cell phone number. So 617-293-8921. That's why it's so hard to get a hold of you. (laughs) I am on the phone often. I am on the phone often. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening, reviewing, sharing. If everyone can forward this to one friend, we would uh, appreciate it greatly. And thank you all again. See you on the next one. Thanks, guys. Cheers. Bye. Bye.